Today's focus is the gift of the Gospel. What does God offer you? If you unwrap the package of the Gospel by faith in Jesus, in repentance from who you are and all that you have done in rebellion against God. If you unwrap the gift of the Gospel, what will He give you? What's on the inside? And the answer of our sermon, uh, the answer to that question is in our sermon title. He will give you the unrivaled preeminence of Jesus. Last week we began a four-part series focusing on the all-satisfying sufficiency of Christ. Now that may sound like a very preachy, religious, churchy phrase to you. But there is a tithe of humanity from the beginning of time, starting with Adam and Eve until today, just a small fraction who have tasted from that fountain. And it's not religiosity, it's not churchianity. It's the foundation of our hope. It's the wellspring of our joy. The unrivaled preeminence of Jesus. Last week, as I mentioned, we began a four-part series on His all-satisfying sufficiency. We looked at Galatians 2, the inexpressible wonder of Christ that He loves us. And on that basis alone, He's given Himself for us, though He's the Son of God. The Bible says that His people were actually crucified with Him. And the life we now have is not our own. It's Christ's life within us. Today we'll look at Colossians 1 and His preeminence in the lives of His people. And Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll look at the goal of the Gospel. The incalculable fullness of Jesus. You can't measure His fullness. He's just simply too big. And then finally, our fourth in this series on February the 11th, Lord willing, the inestimable worth of Jesus. His value. We'll look at Philippians 1 for that. Well, for today, I invite you to Colossians chapter 1 for our focus to fix your gaze on the invisible God. That's an oxymoron. I want you to fix your gaze on the invisible God, and it would be oxymoronic unless the Bible tells us how we can do that. How can you see the invisible God? You do so by fixing the eyes of your soul on the person of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15. He, that's Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated, and death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Join me at the throne of grace as we ask once again for God's help. Father, our prayers that the Lord Jesus would do for us now by the Holy Spirit, what He did for the apostles in Luke 24, open our minds to understand this passage so that we may join You in delighting in the unrivaled preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen. Our primary focus today is the unrivaled preeminence of Jesus. You may not have heard that word in the sermon passage. You may wonder where it comes from. It's actually one little word in verse 18 in the original, pro-to-own. My translation, the New American Standard, says it this way in verse 18. Maybe you can see it that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. The ESV, some of you have, says that in everything He might be preeminent. There's the word. The NIV puts it this way, that in everything He might have the supremacy. The King James, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The word is a, is a present active participle. It's having the first place or holding the preeminence. And there's five facets of the preeminence of Jesus that I want to try to show you from this passage. But first, just to make sure we're on the same page about the overall message of this little book of Colossians and to make sure that we're on the same page about what the word preeminence means. First, what is the overall message of the book of Colossians? Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed walking through Colossians with Devante in our discipleship times, and the Lord has definitely used that young man to help me to see more and understand more clearly what the book is saying about the glory of Christ. The message of Colossians could be summarized that way, the glory of Christ. But there's a specific focus in these four chapters of His glory, that is, Colossians shows us the glory of Christ saturating the entire cosmos. There is no place that His glory is not. It's a parallel to the book of Ephesians. And maybe you've noticed that there's some 15 or 20 verses that are if not identically cited in both of those books are obviously symmetrical. But the focus of Ephesians and the focus of Colossians is slightly different. They're both about the glory of Christ, yes. 
Colossians about the glory of Christ saturating the cosmos. Ephesians about the glory of Christ saturating the church. So in Colossians, Christ's glory is displayed everywhere. And in Ephesians, Christ's glory is displayed in His people. Well, that's the book of Colossians. Well, what does the word preeminence mean? The definition of preeminence is this. The fact of surpassing all others. Distinguished from all others. Above all. Particular. Synonyms may help your mind get around what verse 18 is talking about when it refers to the preeminence of Jesus in everything. Synonyms to preeminence are words like this. Ascendancy. Primacy. Superiority. Domination. With distinction. Incomparability. Authority. Excellence. Predominant. Prestige. Renown. First place. This is the gift that God gives to His people. The unrivaled preeminence of Jesus. This is what Colossians is saying to us about our blessed Lord Jesus in verse 18. That is clear. But would it not stand to reason or seem to make sense that if Christ is to have preeminence in everything, as verse 18 says, then would it not also make sense for us to find in this letter the explanation of what it looks like for Christ to be preeminent in our lives and in our church? That's exactly what Colossians does. It doesn't leave us to figure it out. God spells out to us specifically. The five facets of Christ's preeminence, there are more, but the five I would like to draw from this text, verses 9-12, to we'll look at it in terms of Christ's centrality. Maybe that would help you. Because the preeminence of Christ doesn't mean He gets to be first and you get to be second. And maybe other people you like get to be third. That's not what His preeminence means. It means that He holds the place of primacy. He is the heliocentric center the sun, in the solar system of your life. Everything revolves around Him. It must relate to Him in a way that honors Him or it must be removed altogether. So in your marriage, or your parenting, or your work, or your relationships, your friendships, your job, your money, your leisure time, your thought life, your heart, your ambitions, your intentions, your bucket list, Jesus is primary. He is central. So first, I want you to notice the Christ-centeredness of the prayer request. This is verses 9-12. to The Christ-centeredness of the prayer request. He is preeminent in this prayer. You can see that so clearly at the end of the prayer in verse 12. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, what does that mean? Just go back to verse 11. He strengthened us with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience so that we would therefore joyously give thanks to the Father. And we would give Him thanks, as verse 11 said, for qualifying us, making us suited to share in something. That is an inheritance that we receive among all the saints in the capital L light. Well, what does all that mean? Verse 13 We were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. The whole prayer is predicated on giving thanks to God, verse 11, with joy 
because of what He's done for us in Christ. Time would fail me to try to unfold the details of the Christ-centeredness of the book of Colossians. Many have said that these four little chapters in Colossians contain more of the glory of Christ than any other book in the whole Bible. And with no disrespect to Colossians, that honor may belong to Hebrews or the Gospel of John or Exodus or Psalms or Revelation, but the argument could be made. Maybe you've read Colossians recently, and if not, I commend it to you for your Lord's Day afternoon meditation. Colossians 1.1, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means Jesus is the one who called and sent Paul as his personal ambassador. Or 1.2. The book is written to, quote, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Similarly, the third verse, thanks be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of hearing in verse 4 of their faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. The letter was written by Paul from prison and delivered by Epaphras, Tychicus, and Onesimus. Epaphras is described in 1.8 as a faithful servant of Christ. Or in chapter 4 at the end of the book, Epaphras is described as a bond slave of Christ. We know from chapter 2 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are bound up 2.3 in Christ. All the fullness of deity, 2.9, is contained in Jesus Christ. We learn that when it comes to true Christianity, it's not about rules and regulations and religiosity that are made up by man, but chapter 2, verse 16, all the substance belongs to Christ. Or 2.19, we're commanded, not suggested, to hold fast to the head, that is Jesus, because in 2.20, we died with Christ. And in 3.1, we were raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. So in 3.2, it only makes sense that we set our mind on Jesus because 3.4, Jesus is our life. And one day, we will be revealed with Him in glory. In chapter 4, Paul asked this little church to pray for Him. What does he ask them to pray? That He may speak forth the mystery of Christ. So the book of Colossians, yes, is saturated with the preeminence, the centrality, the glory of Jesus. It should come as no surprise then that when Paul prays for this little congregation, which by the way, he had never visited personally, he prays for them a Christ-centered prayer. In God's providence, Paul got to know about this little church in Colossae through, as I mentioned, Epaphras who came to visit Paul somehow in prison. And Epaphras informed Paul that this little assembly in Colossae was full of people, chapter 1, verse 8, who love one another in the Holy Spirit. What a little phrase. If we're going to love each other well, I could say if we're going to love each other best, we cannot love each other first. A lot of easy ways to destroy a church. Hebrews says one little root of bitterness springing up will defile the whole bunch. We could easily point out everybody's weaknesses. Failures, foibles, the cracks and chinks in the armor. We could criticize each other and degrade each other. We could murmur and complain about what everybody else is not doing or how what they're doing is not being done so well. Or, we could love each other in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is to exalt Jesus or to say all that in shorthand, to love each other best, we cannot love each other first. If we love each other in our own power, it won't really be loving. At least it won't be the best love. 
But if we love each other, chapter 1, verse 8, the way the Colossians loved each other, we'll love each other in the Holy Spirit. That means empowered by the Holy Spirit whose ministry is to exalt the Lord Jesus. So Paul was moved to pray for these people. What is his prayer? It is, as I've tried to say, Christ-centered. Look at verses 9-12. to Verse 9. Let this, pray, let this prayer guide the way you pray for others. Especially the way you pray for this church. Verse 9, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You know, God's not trying to hide from you what He wants you to know and to do. Paul says he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He goes on to spell out what that would look like. Verse 9, that they would have all, what a little word, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But there's a purpose behind knowing God's will. It's not academic. It's not information. If you're full of Bible knowledge, as was prayed a moment ago for the Nashes by April, it could puff you up and make you proud and hard-hearted. It's not so that you only know information, but verse 10, there's a purpose. So that you may walk in a way that pleases the Lord. That's why He prays for them. And there's that little word again, all. Bearing fruit in every good deed. But not stopping there, but continuing to increase in the knowledge of God. What a way to pray for one another. In verse 11 comes the great purpose statement of the whole prayer strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience so you can joyously give thanks to God. That's the culmination. It's all Godward. But it's all Godward for what He's done for us in Christ. We're united in Him. He's qualified all of us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered all of us from the dominion of darkness. Now we're all in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And Jesus is the king. And Paul wants these people to bask with joy in thanks before God for that work. So the ultimate purpose statement, verse 11 at the end, joyfully, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. That God would be given joyful thanks for His work of salvation in our lives is the uppermost goal of this prayer. So let's get practical. Have you thanked Him lately for saving you? Just that. Oh, that we would be made to make that our routine every day before our feet hit the floor. How recalibrating is it to start your day with an awareness that the deepest identity of your life is not what you do, where you work, who you're married to, who your parents are, where you go to school. The deepest identity of your life, I am a child of God. Thank Him for that. What would it look like if God Almighty, that's His name, brought all of His power to work in your life? What if God Almighty descended even now? What if He unzipped the floor of heaven like Isaiah 64 and He fell on you with all the power of the Holy Spirit right now? What would it look like? Would it be expressiveness in worship? Would it be body uh, posture? Would it be many words in prayer? Would it be talking about spiritual things all the time? Verse 11 tells you. Steadfast and patient. Did you hear this little prayer? That you'd be filled... With all of God's power, according to all of His glorious might, so you'd be steadfast and patient. Steadfast. Just faithful. 
Continuing to move forward in Christ by the grace of God in light of the Gospel work and deepening your own apprehension of the preciousness of the Gospel work of Christ. You don't quit on Christ. He never quits on you. By His grace, you just keep looking to Him and trusting Him. To use a word from Corinthians, you're immovable. You're steadfast. That's what it looks like for God's power to be at work in your life. So where are you at in your steadfastness? Not only steadfast, but patient. What a word. This is obviously a fruit of the Holy Spirit that shows up in Galatians chapter 5. It's the exact same Greek word there as here. It occurs 13 times in the New Testament and it carries the idea of endurance and constancy, perseverance, forbearance, long-suffering, slowness to avenge your wrong. You're patient because God has been patient with you. If all God's power worked in your life and mine, the distinguishing marks of that would be you keep moving toward Jesus patiently. That's what it looks like. We're told in Colossians 3.12 to put on this kind of God-honoring patience. We're told in Romans 4 that it's God's patience in this regard that even draws us to Christ for salvation. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and His tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? We're told in 1 Timothy 1, yet for this reason, Paul writes, I found mercy, even though I'm the worst of all the sinners in the world, he says in the previous verse, I found mercy so that Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience. Same word. As an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Well, it's a Christ-centered request. But that, as I've already alluded to, number two, flows from a Christ-centered redemption. Did you notice that word in verses 13 and 14? Or you see it in another way in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 13. He, deli- he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. God the Father did it, but verse 14 begins, in whom, that's God the Son, in Jesus we have redemption. All true salvation is in Christ. Look at that phrase though. The beloved Son. The kingdom of His beloved Son. You see it at the end of verse 13? Some translations render it the Son of His love. The NIV renders it the Son He loves. The King James, His dear Son. He put you into that kingdom. What do you think he thinks of people who are in one that he loves with all his might? He loves you just the same. He placed you in the Son of His love so that you too would be able to experience the vehemence of His love. The immutability of His unquenchable torrent of love to you. Look where He placed you, believer. Though you once walked in darkness, verse 13, you're now in a kingdom. Under a king. He placed you into the kingdom of His Son. Everything about true redemption is radically Christ-centered. He is preeminent in our redemption. It's all by Him and it's all for Him. When we come to the cross in faith, I don't know if you've ever come to the cross in faith, but I'm telling you what it's like. When we come to the cross in faith, confessing our sins, agreeing with God that we're that bad, It took that price 
for our crime to be paid for. That's how bad we are. When you come to the cross in faith, confessing your sin, embracing the risen Jesus for your salvation, holding nothing else, none of your good works, none of your religious activity, only Christ, you get verse 14. Look at those little words. The forgiveness of sins. Oh, to be close to God. But do you know that would be bad news? Unless you could also be clean before Him? The heavens are spotted in His sight. He's of such purity that sin cannot enter. The forgiveness of our sins is found at the cross of Christ. Verse 14 makes plain that our forgiveness is also in Him. Did you see it? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption is radically Christ-centered. Look at the way verse 19 and 20 talk about this. Verse 19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, we'll come back to that in a moment, to dwell in Jesus. And through Him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now I want you to pay careful attention to the Him, Himself, and His. Now in the Bible, you can just read it like your newspaper and not think about it. Or you can meditate on it. This is one of the many places in the Bible where we must pay careful attention to the personal pronoun. Him, Himself, and His. These are not all referring to the same person of the Trinity. I've already supplied the proper noun in one of the places, but if you read verse 20 and put it in the proper nouns, it would sound like this in the New American Standard. And through Jesus, God the Father reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus. Through Jesus, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Do you see it? That at the cross, God the Father was busy. He was doing something. As God the Son died, God the Father was accomplishing something. At the cross of His Son, God the Father was, to quote the verse, reconciling all things to Himself through the blood of Christ. This is the hinge on which real reconciliation with God the Father swings. The bloody cross of His Son. The same truth is littered through the whole Bible if we'll just slow down and read the verses of the Bible. Every turn of every phrase with a spirit of prayer, this will be a vehicle that takes us right into the throne room of God to understand who He is and what He's done. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. And you tell me who reconciled the world to Himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them. Did you catch it? God the Father in God the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. How? As He was dying for His people, it says two verses later. Our redemption is entirely Christ-centered. This is His preeminence. So by application, in our first point when we pray, if you don't know what to pray for, pray that your whole life would revolve around Jesus. Pray that the people around you that they would be beautified with the beauty of Jesus. That Christ would take up residence in their life. And I promise you, if He does, He'll come out. And the way you'll be riveted to pray like that for others and for yourself is you'll realize all of redemption is bound up in Him. Well, third, verses 15-19, to 19, not only the Christ-centered request and Christ-centered redemption, but the Christ-centeredness of God's revelation. 
the Christ-centeredness of God's revelation. This is verses 15 to 19. Now friends, I don't believe that this paragraph could be fully unpacked in a thousand sermons. It's just too glorious. It can't fit. Our, our finite mind can't fully get around this and in this. Why heaven will be forever because God is inexhaustible and will have forever to track down the beauty and wonder and glory of who God is for us in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit with no impediment. But I believe He'll use passages like this. He's not going to throw the Bible away when you get to heaven. His Word endures forever. It's fixed in the heavens. It never passes away. On and on we go. God's going to use this passage of the Bible for a trillion zillion eternities to thrill your soul with the unspeakable wonder of Jesus. Now I challenge you to memorize this paragraph. Verses 15-19. to 19. To make it the subject of your careful meditation for the rest of your life. It's one of the highest mountain peaks in the entire Bible. In this text, the glory of Jesus Christ shines more clearly than Peter, James, and John beheld in the face of Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. For a brief introduction, I want you to put your eyes on it and pray that God would help you to see what is there. Verse 19, let's begin there. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. The Father's pleasure for all the fullness to be in Christ? The Father's pleasure. I believe Piper gets it right in his soul-igniting book, The Pleasures of God, when he writes about verse 19. It was God the Father's pleasure, delight, to make the Word flesh. In other words, Piper writes, it was God's pleasure to do this as we have seen in Scripture elsewhere that God loved His Son. Delighted in His Son. John 17, before the foundation of the world. He loved Him, John 10, in His incarnate state. But in this verse, we see that when God the Father and God the Son in eternity past engaged to unite deity and humanity in Jesus, the Father burst into joy over this act. He delighted in His Son's readiness to redeem the world by becoming a man. Therefore, it says, it pleased God for the fullness of deity to dwell in Jesus. Now dear ones, if I preached 10,000 sermons on this, I myself wouldn't fully understand it, let alone you. But you have to know something about God. If you want to know God truly, the true God wants you to know this about Him. He's glad. He is happy. He takes delight. It rejoices His magnanimous soul. He is roused to pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, bodily, so that you may know God truly. God was glad for all of God to dwell in the God-man bodily so that you may know God truly. Won't you join God in delighting in His Son, the Lord Jesus? Well, now that we've got that in our mind, I dare you to go back to verse 15. God is invisible. This is perfectly consistent with the testimony of the Bible. says that He is the image of the invisible God, but you've got to start with His invisibility. No one, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, has ever seen God at any time. Nobody. 
First Timothy 6 goes on to say it this way. That is because God dwells in unapproachable light. Don't say you've seen Him. You have not. No one has. John the Apostle said unequivocally, without stuttering, no man has seen God at any time. John 1.18 Jesus told the woman at the well, God is Spirit. Our Tasting the Truth catechisms try to pull this out in bite-sized chunks for us all to try to reckon with. Can you see God? No, but He always sees me. Our catechism then rightly affirms, God is Spirit and does not have a body like a man. And if you want your little finite mind to explode into smithereens, then reckon with the testimony of Scripture that not even the Lord Jesus had a body until He became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, meaning had Jesus never become a man, God in His triune person never would have been visible to mankind. Nobody would have seen Him. But verse 15 says, now you can. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He images forth God to us. If we've seen Jesus, Jesus says to us, John 14, we have seen the Father. That's because in His nature, Hebrews 1.3, he exactly represents God. Or, to break the word down, represents God. The reason that Jesus can represent God to you or image God forth to you is because in His nature, He shares God's nature. Therefore, on the outside of Him, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1, or as His name indicates, He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Or as Colossians 2.9 says, all the fullness of deity dwelled in Him bodily. But look at verse 16. Not only does He image God to us in a way that we can see without being incinerated, He also is the Creator of everything outside of God. We've labored this point at Grace Church and may we never tire of laboring it. God was never created Ever. He's always existed. Our minds cannot compute that. It's impossible for you and I to think outside of the temporal. We talk about eternity past. There is no such thing. He never began to exist. He is the eternal I Am. He is self-existent. His aseity, one of the essential aspects of His own nature, is that He is immutably self-sufficient. He depends on nothing outside of Himself for His existence. He's the only one in all the universe for whom that is true. He was never created. The first verse of the Bible is true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not everything the Bible says about God creating the heavens and the earth. God was not at some point created. He has always existed. Everything outside of God, including space and time, at some point came to be. This verse teaches us that the little embryo in the womb of the probably teenage girl is the agent among the triune Godhead by whom everything came into existence. That's verse 16. For by Him all things were created. The fact that God the Son is the Creator is taught clearly in many, many places of the Bible. 
Hebrews 1.2 tells us all things came into existence through Him. John 1.3 says nothing came into existence apart from Him. Who made the world though? Hebrews 1 tells us in more specificity than maybe any other place, God the Father made it. I thought you said, Jordan, that God the Son made it. I did say that. But this is what I mean. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He, God the Father, appointed the heir of all things, through whom, God the Son, He, God the Father, also made the world. Who made the world? God the Father. Through whom did He make it? God the Son. Did you catch that? This is the story of the whole Bible. You would be thinking unbiblically if you thought of one of God's great acts of providence that He did independently of the other persons of the Trinity. This is the story of the whole Bible. There is one and only one God. He exists in His happy self-sufficiency, in His triunity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all the ways that God has ever made Himself known, He has been pleased to do so through His Son. In creation, long before you and I ever existed, God the Son stood up, as it were, in the throne room of heaven and said to the Father, if you are going to glorify yourself by spilling over into creation to just display the wonder of who you are so that your creatures and creation itself can join you in the happy place of making much of you, then please, God the Son would say, use me to glorify yourself that way. In creation, God the Son is the agent. The same is true in redemption as we have already seen. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, He reconciles us to Himself through His blood. And one day in the great consummation, Hebrews 1 says, God the Son will stand up once again and say, Father, if You're going to wrap up human history and You're going to draw it to a close and You're going to turn off this little invention You made called time, then use Me to roll up the heavens like a shirt so that You get all the glory through Me. Not only is Jesus the Creator of everything, verse 17 says He's the Sustainer of everything. The fact that you're held together now is owing entirely to the sustaining power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says He sustains everything by the Word of His power. Colossians 1.17 says it all holds together by Him. In Him. That means that the tarantula that's now crawling on the Asian forest floor and the supernova that's suspended in a galaxy that our best telescope has never seen. Both owe their sustenance to the power of Jesus of Nazareth. But not only does He sustain everything that He created, the text tells us in no uncertain terms in verse 16 that it all happened, Greek word E-I-S, ice, into, to, toward, for, Him. Everything exists for Him. You exist for Jesus. Yes, it's true that Jesus came into the world for you. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. But it's equally true on the basis of Colossians 1.17 that you came into the world for Him. You exist for Him. And to withhold from Him His rightful glory in your life is the crime of all crimes. That's why the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. All of it. If you break the greatest commandment, then you committed the greatest sin. You exist for Him. If you were sane and I was sane, if we were in our right mind, if we weren't infected down to our core with the fall, human depravity, 
then every single one of us would only always do everything for the glory of God, which is exactly what Corinthians commands us to do. Even down to the most minute detail of life, whether you eat or whether you drink, everything. Colossians 1.17 For Him. And though our carnal mind might suppose that a text becomes anticlimactic, to move from a description like that to start talking about a little bitty fledgling group like this, the local church, those who are in Jesus, who know Him as the Creator, the Sustainer, and the end of all things. We know that verse 18 is actually the most glorious part of it all. It is this Jesus who exercises His preeminence now and forever in a particular people. The church. Look at verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. The One who is the sovereign Creator. The One who currently sustains everything and everyone who perfectly images forth the invisible God to us, for whom all things exist, has bound His mighty and glorious self to the church like a head is bound to a body. We're not an acephalous torso. Headless. We have a head. He is the head of the body the church. The book of Ephesians reaches into this truth and pulls it out and holds it out for us in a way that should cause our heart to skip a beat. Ephesians 1.18 says it this way. Here's a prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know three things. What is the hope of God's calling? What is the riches of God's glory in His inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the surpassing greatness of the power of God toward us who believe? Okay, Paul, what would that look like? That would look like this. The power that I'm praying will be at work in you is Ephesians chapter 1, 20 and following. The same power that God exerted when He raised Jesus from the dead. But not only that. The resurrection power, but also the power God exerted when He seated Jesus at His right hand in the heavenly places. Not only that. But the power God exerted when He put everything in subjection under Christ's feet. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Everything. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All of it. And not only that. The power He exerted when He gave Jesus of Nazareth as head over His body, the church, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's what Paul's talking about here. The preeminence of Jesus in the local church. The best news that I know how to say to you is that this church does not exist for you. We say it, you know, sometimes with a little tongue-in-cheek, but there's so much sobriety beneath it. We don't care what you think. Better news. We don't care what we think. We're not the head. <laughs> it's all for Him. It's the second time in this passage the word firstborn. It's in verse 18. And it is in verse uh, 16 or 17. Uh, 15. 18 and 15. Firstborn of all creation, 15. Firstborn from the dead, 18. Firstborn? Firstborn? That mean he was created, verse 15? 
Verse 18, does that mean nobody rose from the dead before him? He's the firstborn from the dead? The Bible's answer is no. Jesus was not created. That's not what firstborn of all creation means. It wasn't the first to rise from the dead in terms of chronology. That's not what firstborn from the dead means. You can't be created if verse 16 says, A-L-L, all things are created by Him. He didn't create Himself. He created everything else. Firstborn of all creation doesn't mean He was created. It's talking about His position or relationship to creation. Just like the firstborn son in the Old Testament was the rightful heir to everything, so Jesus, the firstborn to creation, is the rightful inheritor of it all. It all belongs to Him. Everything in all of creation belongs to Jesus. Get your grubby hands off of it. Do not touch His glory. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Everything, Hebrews 1-2, has already been given to Jesus. Or when He rose from the dead from His own glorified lips, He said, all the authority in all of heaven and in all the earth is Mine. He's the firstborn of creation. He's also the firstborn from the dead. That means He's the rightful heir because He is the representative of everybody who's raised from spiritual death. Jesus raised His people from the dead. And He did so so that He would be first among them. The place of primacy. That we would all look like our older brother. That we would bear the family image. The Imago Dei, which was lost in the fall, is replaced by the Imago Christi, the image of Christ in us, being recreated into a new person from glory to glory for endless eternities until we shine and outshine the sun in the sky with the glory of Christ. Purpose statements all over this passage. Yes, I know what time it is. Look at verse 18. So that? There's a purpose statement. Verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. So that He Himself it's double imperative. This one, this one. In case you missed it the first time with two letters and a personal pronoun, not just He, He Himself. He gets it all. He has first place in everything. This is God's great purpose. It's the reason that God revealed Himself to us in Christ when God was invisible and unknowable. The reason, if you back up from the incarnation to the days of creation, it's the reason God created everything. There's a book in heaven. We're told about it in the book of Revelation. And it has a title. The title of the book in heaven. On the cover, embossed. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. He created everything. And let sin intrude so that His Son could hang on a tree which He created on a hill which He formed outside of Jerusalem as men whom He sustained nailed Him with mallets to that cross so that you could know God in a way that Jesus Himself, He Himself, gets first place in everything. That's the purpose. 
That's the preeminence of Christ. That's the gift He offers you. So that He will come to have first place in everything. God declared that Jesus is His Son. And He declared it with the loudest possible megaphone to the entire universe. How did He declare it? What was His megaphone? Romans 1.4 He raised Jesus from the dead. You've got to reckon with that. If He's not raised from the dead, I quit. Not only quit as pastor, I quit as Christian. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry. Let's get all we can get in this lifetime. Dig with your hands into this ground and make you some broken cisterns that will never satisfy you if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. But if He's alive, if He is alive, you have to reckon with that. You cannot be indifferent to that. So that He will have first place in everything. Fourth, maybe I'll do fifth, maybe I'll spare you. You patient people. Fourth, the Christ-centered result. And I'll tell you the fifth, the Christ-centered resolution. So we got a Christ-centered request based on Christ-centered redemption, based on a Christ-centered revelation that produces a Christ-centered result that yields a Christ-centered resolution. The result. It's in verse 20 and 20, uh, 21 and 22. Look at this result. Who were you before Jesus put His holy hands on you? Who were you before He stepped into your life and took over? Who were you before He came hunting for you? And if He goes hunting, He's coming back with the game. Who were you before He chased you down in His wonderful love? Verse 21, three descriptions. You were alienated from God. You were hostile in your mind and you were engaged in evil deeds. Alienated means separated. You had no fellowship with God. I don't care how many nighttime prayers you prayed as a kid. You were separate from Him. Alienated ostracized your mind was hostile to him that's why the word repentance metanoia carries the idea not only of turning but actually changing your mind metanoia means a change of mind that's the word repentance in the new testament you were hostile in your mind until in repentance you agreed with god about who you are you took sides with God against yourself. You had a complete revolution of mind. A total Copernican revolution about who you are and who Jesus is. And you were engaging in evil deeds. That's who you were. But you want to know the result of the Gospel? Let your eyes fall in verse 22. This is every Christian's testimony. We just saw a beautiful expose of that on the screen just a little while ago in Katie's testimony. The glorious Christ-centered result of the Gospel. He reconciled you, verse 19, in Christ's fleshly body through death. God was pleased for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus so that He could reconcile you this way through the blood of the cross. What a God! Why does He do it? Verse 22, to present you, this is the result, before Himself, three words, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Look who you were outside of Christ. Look who you are in Christ. And look at the focal point of the presentation. You are a secondary beneficiary. You are getting in the way of what God is doing for His glory. You just so happen to benefit immensely. All of your salvation is for Him. He doesn't even save you primarily for you. He saves you primarily, quote, for Himself. So that when you stand before Him, to show off the wonder of His love. The limitless reach of His grace. The oceanic supply of His mercy. When you stand before Him, 
Nobody gets to boast. Nobody gets to brag. Every one of the redeemed shining like a diadem in this endless sea of jewels, trophies of His grace, all made holy, all blameless in His sight, all beyond reproach, all because of Jesus. What a Redeemer! What a Redeemer! How could He not have first place among His people? There are those who are in for a rude awakening the nanosecond after their heart takes its last beat. And the rude awakening will be this. They suppose they're headed to a Christ-centered heaven when they had little to no interest in a Christ-centered earth. But the heaven that is coming will be not only Christ-centered in an ethereal way up there somewhere, but in a very concrete way, objectively, the new heavens and new earth will be the playground of the glory of Jesus for all of His people, for all of eternity. Every single one of us, holy through and through, incapable of having an unholy thought or action, separated not only from the penalty of our sin, but from the capacity to commit it. We will be not only sinless, but incapable. We will be sin immune. We will be blameless before Him. As pure as He is before the Father's face, so pure will all of His people be for all of eternity. He will infect us and saturate us. He will contaminate us with the fact that He is blameless. And we will therefore be beyond reproach. We don't rest one minute in our performance to save us. We don't look down our supposedly holy noses at other people thinking that we're better than them. That's why God saved us. We don't look to our own blamelessness. We don't try to outwork our previous reproaches to make us suitable for heaven. We rest in the finished work of Jesus and His risen, regal majesty seated at the right hand of God. And we say, please hide me in the cleft of the rock. Hide me in the man at your right hand so that I may have all His righteousness. And if we're in Him, we will strive by grace to pursue holiness, which is our fourth and uh, fifth and final point. Are you in Christ? I say with biblical support, prove it. Prove it. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us so clearly that the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was torn from top to bottom. The way was open. Do you have access into the Holy of Holies where no man would have dared to go outside of an invitation in the Old Testament? Can you go in there and not only go in, but be preserved? Not only be preserved, but be roused to pleasure and delight? Can you find real joy and satisfaction in the presence of God? Is the veil rent? Are you in Him? Are you seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Colossians 3, because you've been raised with Him. Because Colossians 2, you died with Him. Has the certificate of your own debt been nailed to the cross in Jesus of Nazareth? Colossians 2. So that it's all canceled before God's sight and now you can stand favorably in His presence. I just say, prove it. Have you ever reckoned with the conditional clauses of the Bible? Verse 23. Notice this conditional clause as we close. If. If. He's going to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach if you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard. And then Paul ends with the 
testament to his own ministry, the gospel that was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which he, that is Paul, was made a minister. If, if you don't continue in the faith, then you never began. If you ever move away from the hope of the gospel, then you never dove into the depths of the gospel. It's a supernatural resolve. It's not willpower. We're not making commitments to Jesus about how good we're going to be at living the Christian life. If He doesn't preserve me tomorrow, I deny the faith. It's all owing to His power. Just like He sustains all creation by His Word, verse 17, for Himself, so also He sustains all His people to the end so that He can pray audacious prayers like John chapter 6. Father, Every single one you gave to me, I'm going to bring back to you. All of them. We depend on Jesus and Jesus alone to not move away from the hope of the Gospel. We depend on the indwelling power of the Spirit of Jesus for us to continue in the faith. This otherworldly resolve, and I say otherworldly because it comes from another universe. It's supernatural. It is not natural. But it is the resolve of every child of God. Lord Jesus, tether me to the Gospel. Moor me like a boat to a dock to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do not let me drift. Do not let me wander away from You. Keep me believing. The Christian is the person who continues in the faith. And by grace, this verse says, I love it. Firmly established. And there it is again. Steadfast. Just keep on. One foot in front of the other. One step closer to Jesus. Our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And it's all about Christ. We're chasing Him. He is the finish line. He's the prize on which we fix our eyes. Everything He's done for us, one day fully enjoyed by us. It's all about the life of Christ within us. Changing our desires. Weaning us off the world. It's all about His power. The, the cross of Christ in us to produce from us what we couldn't produce for ourselves. We just abide in Jesus and we trust that the nutrients of His life-giving power will flow into the little twig and branch of our life and He produces this fruit to the glory of the Father. Stop trying to occupy the position that rightly belongs to Jesus. Repent from your idolatry of self-preeminence. First place, everything belongs to Him. All of it. So start practicing in your prayers. Asking God to help you make them more Christ-centered for your life and for others. And if you have a hard time doing that, just go right back to the cross of Calvary and look at your bloody redemption in the body of Jesus and bask there how Christ-centered your redemption is. Delve deep into verses 15 to 19 until your soul is lit on fire with God's Christ-centered revelation of His invisible self. And begin to pray and pursue holiness as the Christ-centered result of your redemption that you would now and ever be increasingly holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And hold tight, verse 23, to the Christ-centered Gospel. And if you move from it, you never held on to it. This is what it looks like for Jesus to be preeminent in our lives. But don't be hyper-individualistic about this. This whole passage was written to a little church. 
You can't do this by yourself. I can't do this by myself. Oh, may this one truly be a church where we hold one another's feet in love, in patience, in prayerfulness. We hold one another's feet to the all-satisfying fire of the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. And if that's what you want for your life because of what Christ has done for you, if you've already announced publicly and far and wide as you can through your baptism that you know Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, if you belong to a church that says, yep, that's the Jesus we also follow, then we want to invite you all to an invitation. We have an invitation every Sunday. It's the Lord's Supper. And if what I just described is you, then you come and partake as your hearty amen to say, yes, Lord, that passage in me. If for whatever reason that doesn't describe you, we encourage you to remain right where you're seated. That is, if you're not yet a Christian or haven't been baptized, you're not a member of a local church, or there's some sin in your life you're unwilling to forsake. We love you enough to say, refrain. But while you refrain, don't refrain from Jesus. Meditate on the sermon or reread the sermon passage. We also have a 10-hour invitation. That's about a two-minute invitation. Just like churches have invitationals where people come up and for 20 seconds talk to a pastor and say, I think I got saved today. We want you to tell us that too. But instead of 20 seconds, we have a 10-hour way for you to tell us that. Four of those hours are called starting points. Four more of those hours are called foundations of grace. And at least two more of those hours to make a minimum of 10 are a personal conversation with you that we call a sharing care. If you think you have been saved, we invite you for 10 hours to let us join you in the wonder of God making you His own through Christ. You can sign up for that today in the back or any Sunday in the back. Let's pray together.